Uh, we're going to talk about the intermediate state, uh, that is the state uh, that we will find ourselves in, uh, and, and I'm focusing almost exclusively now on the state of the believer rather than the unbeliever. We'll be coming back to the state of the believer uh, after death and before the second coming, uh, uh, something that we generally call the intermediate state. But now that everybody's here, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for our Wednesday evenings and uh, for this midpoint in the week when we can gather together and study, study the scriptures, study what your word has to say about uh, various matters and tonight especially about the intermediate state. Pray for your blessing. Help us to be subject at every point to what the scripture says. We want to give you uh, honor and, and glory and uh, pray now for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we think about um, what happens to uh, the soul uh, immediately at death, uh, I want us, first of all, to get a bigger picture that the, that the predominant emphasis of the New Testament is, is not on the state of the soul immediately after death. The predominant emphasis of the New Testament is the, what we might call the eternal state. What, what will be the state of... Um, what condition will we find ourselves in um, after the second coming in the new heavens and in the new earth? The, the, the problem is that before the second coming and the new heavens and new earth, there's, there's, there's a span of time, uh, now until the second coming, however long that is, uh, but it also extends backwards, uh, first of all, to the time uh, of Jesus' resurrection. What about all those, what's happened to all those people who have died from the time of Jesus' resurrection up until now? And, and all the way up until the, the, the second coming. At the second coming, and, and, and there's also another question about what happens to Old Testament believers, and the church hasn't always had the same answer. For, for my part, I think the, the state of believers and unbelievers, both Old Testament and New Testament, those who lived during the Old Covenant and those who, who have lived since the time of Christ's resurrection, that that state is exactly the same. Now, um, Catholicism had a different view, and there's a view known as Limbus Patrum, uh, where where Old Testament believers are kind of held were held in abeyance uh, and uh, until the coming of Christ, and and then they were perhaps you know set free from that condition. So so there's that issue, um, but there's also the issue of at the, at the time of Jesus' second coming, those who are alive will be caught, Thessalonians, those who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord uh, in the air. So, so they, won't, they won't die. The only two people uh, who have not physically died, who have not experienced the, the, 
separation of body and soul that takes place at death are Enoch in Genesis 5 and um, Elijah, who was taken by a chariot with his corporeal body uh, into the new um, existence. Uh, I, I don't, I, the Bible doesn't explain that. I don't know quite what to make of that. I, I, I don't know, does that mean that they're in a different condition to every, everyone else uh, in that intermediate state? Um, well, we're, we'll, those are some of the issues that we're going to dive into tonight. Well, uh, the first point, and I need to get started here, uh, the first point is that the eschatological focus, right? Big, there was a big word at lunchtime today. Anybody remember what that was? Who was here? Cosmology, right? We had that, I'd forgotten. Cosmology, <laughs> I just remember there was a big word. Cosmology, right? The big word for tonight is eschatology. The eschatological, what's the focus of the New Testament? What's, actually, what's the focus of, say, the closing two chapters of Isaiah? Isaiah 65, 66, the new heavens and the new earth, right? So the focal point of, of the end time of Scripture, the focal point is, is the very end. What, what happens at the very end? The, the new heavens and the new earth. That's, that, that's saying that the, the Bible sometimes in the haste to see the very end can, can, can skate over some of the intermediate um, aspects and, and, and not answer all uh, of our questions. So the next great redemptive event is the second coming. Um, and, and perhaps the, the immediate complex set of events that surround the second coming, which we'll talk about in the spring of next year, unless Jesus returns. And then all of your answers, your questions will be answered. Uh, the ultimate focus then of the New Testament for individuals in union with Christ in, is heaven, the final state of believers. Now, I want, I want to pull back from there. That, that, I think, is the major focus that you have in the New Testament. But I want to pull back from there and ask the question, what happens, what happens to us? What happens to me? However, I define me. What is, what is the essence of me? Is it my body? Is it my mind? Is it, is it my consciousness? Does it have psychological aspects? Is it my spirit? Is it my soul? All of that. What happens to me between the, the moment of my death and the moment of final resurrection, which accompanies, is one of those things that will accompany the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And, and that we call, typically we call the intermediate state. Let me put it in a different way and sometimes in a popular way. What happens five seconds after you die? What can you say about you or about me or about anyone 
five seconds after, or, all right, you're going to be clever and you're going to say, you know, we can bring people back to life after 15 minutes, 20 minutes. That science is now extending, right? So, so we, we, we're having to redefine what, what, what exactly is the moment of death. How do you define death? And that, that definition keeps being tinkered with a little as science improves and, and, and we're forced to make some changes. But So let's, let's, let's say what happens, to, where am I? What is my existence? What is my state an hour after I've been pronounced dead? Now Augustine, uh, the great church theologian, uh, in one of his early works in Chiridon, uh speaks of souls at death um, enjoy rest or suffer affliction, depending on whether they're believers or unbelievers, consciously uh, awaiting the consummation, awaiting the end, when their present existence will be confirmed in some way in a state of everlasting blessedness or everlasting damnation. So, so there's Augustine uh, saying that, the, that after you die, you, you are in a state of consciousness. You are in a state of awareness, either with Jesus uh, in blessedness or apart from him in a, a condition of damnation. It's not the final state, but it is a conscious state. So that's Augustine, uh, 5th century, uh, representing the belief uh, and understanding of the church uh, as to the intermediate state. Now, somewhere uh, in that period uh, and, and subsequent to that period, there develops a, a doctrine, a view known as purgatory, um, a, an intermediate state after physical death in which those destined for heaven undergo, this is now uh, the Catholic Catechism, uh, undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. That's, um, that's a fairly contemporary Catholic um, catechism uh, advocating uh, a view of purgatory. Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Eastern Church, uh, has a similar kind of view, uses different language, talks about theosis and so on, becoming God like or in, in more crass forms, uh, being, being submerged into, uh, into um, uh, the, the, the Godhead in some form or fashion. Um, uh, high church Anglicanism and high Lutheranism also has a view of purgatory. Uh, just some historical stuff here uh, that purgatory was... Um, formally uh, given uh, standing uh, at the First Council of Lyon in uh, 1245, the Second Council 1274, the Council of Florence in uh, the 15th century, and then the, the Council of Trent in the 16th century. So um, a sort of medieval stamp on the doctrine of purgatory. It involves uh, things like prayers for the dead, uh, as they make their way through the various stages of purgatory. Uh, and it also involves, uh, famously at the time of the Reformation, the selling of indulgences, the granting of in, purchasing indulgences and setting a soul free. And uh, you, some of you remember Tetzel and so on, and uh, uh, selling 
uh, indulgences uh, so that the Holy Roman Empire could make some more money uh, to do whatever it wanted to do. And uh, that's all part of the background of the Reformation. Coming right down to 2015, at least to 2008, uh, N.T. Wright, that many of you would be familiar with the name uh, as uh, an advocate of uh, so-called new perspective on justification, which we talked about a while ago now. But N.T. Wright, who's a very famous and and very vocal and and much authored individual on lots of blogs and and everybody seems to be quoting N.T. Wright. Uh, N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican, of course, and a bishop at that, um, uh, believes in purgatory. I see no reason why we should not pray uh, for and with the dead, that they will be refreshed and filled with God's joy and peace. That's not a full-blown um, statement about purgatory, but it's, it's a typical Anglican. Sorry if you're Anglican, just keep quiet for a second. Um, but, but that's, uh, that's, a, that's a, a, a typical Anglican belief in purgatory. Anglican is, Anglicanism has, has always been open uh, to the notion of purgatory. There's a famous picture here. Uh, from uh, Bronzino's famous picture uh, of Dante looking at purgatory, the famous mountain uh, that is often, uh, often represents um, uh, um, purgatory. And some of you will have copies of Dante's Inferno, for example, and has this picture maybe on the cover of it. It's a very famous picture of purgatory. Um, there's one more, well, a couple more references to purgatory. Um, Uh, the 2005 compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, questions uh, 210 and 211. What is purgatory? Purgatory is the state of those who die in God's friendship, assured of their eternal salvation, but who still have need of purification to enter into the happiness of heaven. That's pretty straightforward then. So so you're in friendship with God, whatever that means, and, and when you die... Uh, you go into a, a kind of limbo uh, situation, state, uh, not to heaven. You still have a, a, a ritual of purification in order to enter into that final state. And that is achieved by prayers for the dead or indulgences uh, or a granting uh, of release by uh, a pope. And John Henry Newman, for example, um, and uh, John Henry Newman is mentioned here under D, The Dream of Gerontius, a very famous poem of John Henry Newman, a 19th century Anglican who then became Roman Catholic, uh, and then some became Roman Catholic with a vengeance. And uh, extraordinary man, a very intelligent man, uh, wrote beautiful poetry, uh, but, but became a very, very devout Roman Catholic. Uh, and uh, The Dream of Gerontius, some of you will know uh, Sir Edward Elgar's Oratorio, The Dream of Gerontius, which is one of the most beautiful pieces of music I know. It's being played live in London uh, on Friday evening with a Vienna Philharmonic and Sir Simon Rattle conducting. I would give my back teeth to be there uh, for that performance. This is one of those incredible moments. And, and how, do you, how do you portray, you know, the, the theology here is terrible, but, but it, it, it portrays a soul who's, who's working his way through purgatory and, and eventually reaches that moment 
uh, so-called the beatific vision, when he, when he beholds the glory of God and he emerges out of purgatory. How do you, how do you put that musically? And you have to have a, a, a sort of build-up that's been building for about 20 minutes uh, to uh, one of the most powerful crescendos in music that I know. I'm, I'm just a layman. Dan Cole isn't here, so I can, I can talk like this now. But, but it, it's, it's, it's absolutely breathtaking. The theology stinks, but the music is exquisite. Uh, Edward Elgar, of course, was, was Roman Catholic and believed in purgatory. Well, I, 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 um, I, I don't believe that the New Testament teaches purgatory. I think that at death, uh, our, our final state of either being with Christ or, or being damned is sealed. Uh, it is appointed unto man, unto man once to die and after death the judgment. And we'll talk about the, the immediate judgment uh, that happens uh, uh, after death. That'll be our next um, study. Now, there are denials uh, of consciousness in the, in the intermediate state, and they come from various uh, sources, sometimes referred to as soul sleep, that at the moment of death, um, you, don't, you, you go into a state of unconsciousness, uh, of, of, of our consciousness, uh, a, a state of non-being almost, uh, and it differs uh, from various schools of thought as to how, how this is explained. Um, Jehovah Witnesses, for example, and Seventh-day Adventists uh, believe in the idea of soul sleep, but they, they have different views of it. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses advocate uh, annihilation at death, and the soul is completely remade uh, at the time of the resurrection. So so goes into a state of complete non-being uh, during the intermediate state. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists believe the soul remains, uh, and I don't get this, I don't really want to waste my time trying to understand it, but it, it, it remains somehow in the consciousness of God. So it's, it's slightly different from Jehovah's Witnesses that speak of, uh, of total annihilation. Uh, and they base it on a couple of texts from Ecclesiastes uh, 9.5, the living uh, know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward for their memory is forgotten. And on that text, they, 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 they understand that text to refer to the intermediate state, uh, that there is no memory, no consciousness, uh, in, and, and therefore no, no being uh, in the intermediate uh, state. Uh, Calvin uh, wrote uh, his very first, well, his very first book was, was what we might think of today as a PhD uh, dissertation on uh, something entirely secular. It was on uh, Seneca, uh, on the writings of Seneca. Um, uh, but then uh, somewhere around 15, and I didn't have time this morning to check these dates, but uh, somewhere around 1534, 35 or so, uh, he, he writes this book called Psychopanikia, which is a study of soul sleep. That was his first sort of Christian book. Uh, and then a year, maybe a year and a half later, he writes the first edition uh, as a 27-year-old of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. But his, his, his first book, before he did that, was this book, Psychopanikia. 
all that to say, why am I telling you this, that, that in the middle of the 1530s, the, the issue of the intermediate state was, was obviously something that was in much discussion, and partly because of Catholic thought on purgatory that was now being seriously overturned by the Reformation, um, but overturned with, with, with views uh, that were yet uh, to be formed theologically, and, and Calvin is addressing uh, that issue. Um, it, it suggests, it being uh, the idea of no consciousness in the intermediate state, suggests that sin has no effect on the soul since it passes through death unscathed. Um, the, the, uh, let, me, let, me, let me put that in different words. The reason why some people deny the intermediate state as a state of consciousness, a, a separation of the body dies, is buried, um, and, and, and what continues? Well, what continues is the soul, what continues is the spirit, but that that, according to critics, suggests that the body sort of gets punished because of sin and it, it dies. It, is, it suffers the consequences of, of breaking the covenant of life or the covenant of works. But the soul seems, to, seems not to be affected by that at all and, and, and continues. And, and that seems to some to, to, to question the unity of man as body and soul. Why, why should the body suffer the consequences of sin and die and the soul not suffer any consequence? That, that would be part of the issue. Or it comes from a different um, argument. If the state of the individual in the intermediate state, the, the individual in union with Jesus in the intermediate state is one of blessedness, this would seem to undermine the significance of the final state. How can you be blessed in the intermediate state and then, what, fully blessed in the final state at the resurrection? What, what is the nature of that blessedness that's different from the final blessedness? Uh, so so that, that kind of argument has been raised against uh, consciousness in the intermediate state. And then um, thought and, and accusation that the, the whole idea of separation of body and soul is, is, is Greek. It, it's, it's Platonic. It's, it, it, it's Greek philosophy. And that's an easy charge to make, for sure, um, that this is an idea that's being... That's being um, brought into the Bible and, and forced upon biblical interpretation that doesn't belong there. Uh, the body is the prison house of the soul idea. And that's, that's Greek. So, so there are, you know, you can read lots of blogs out there that will throw, you know, they'll just throw out the accusation. Once it's thrown out, it's, it kind of sticks that, that this is more Greek than, than, than biblical. Well, um, what is it that survives death? Clearly, it's not this body of ours. Right? The, the body is dead. The body is, 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 is dead. It's buried or it's cremated. We won't go into that issue now. But, but 
but it's not the body that survives. What is it if, if there is consciousness, if there is awareness an hour after death? What, what, where does that consciousness belong? Where does it come from? Where, where does it reside? And the biblical answer is that it re- resides in the soul or it resides in the spirit. And I make no distinction between soul and, and, and spirit. That I use those two words uh, um, as synonymous. Um, let's look at, uh, and, and let's focus just on the New Testament, and let's focus on, on the Greek um, um, psyche or, or soul. Matthew ten twenty eight. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Hell, obviously a distinction being made here between body and soul. We are, we are made of body and soul. We are both body and soul. But there is, there is an existence, there is a state of being, there is a state of consciousness surviving death that continues after death in which the, the body is no more, but, the, but it's, it's, it's a, a state of um, the soul. Cannot kill the body, um, but, uh, but can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Or Revelation 6, 9, uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. In many ways, that's the key text to Revelation. That's the key that unlocks the book of Revelation. What, what, why is John writing the book of Revelation? To answer the question, what's happened to those Christians who have, be, who have died, who have been killed, who have been martyred, who have been eaten by lions, who have been set ablaze in a, a Roman amphitheater? And John is writing to them and, say, and saying to them, I've seen them. I've seen their souls. He's not talking about their bodies, but he says, I saw uh, I saw the souls under the altar, the souls of those who had been, uh, who had been uh, slain for, uh, for uh, the word of uh, God and for the witness they had borne. Now, the question that you may be asking yourself, and it's a good question, it's an important question, how can you see, how could John see a soul if it has no body? What exactly did he see? Right, and and in part this is this is revelation. In part, this is apocalyptic language. Putting it simplistically, he he, you know, that's kind of an unfair question. But in another sense, it's also a fair question. If the body, if the body, if the body is no more, what is it that John saw in his vision under the altar of believers who had died in the great uh, persecution? Well, hold that question and thought in your mind, and we're going to come back to it in a minute. Uh, Revelation 20 and verse 4, I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. It's, it's the same, same idea of Revelation 6 now coming back again in uh, Revelation 20. It's part, I think, of the pastoral reason 
why John writes the book of Revelation to give comfort and solace to Christians about um, their fellow Christians, their husbands, wives, children, parents, uh, friends uh, who have been uh, taken violently uh, from them. Where are they? And John is saying, they're alive, I tell you, and I've seen them. And they're, they're underneath the altar. They're right in the presence of Almighty God there with Jesus. That, that's the pastoral thing that John is trying to address. Now let's go a little deeper. Um, the, the intermediate condition according to Scripture. Uh, the Old Testament uh, uses the word sheol and the uh, New Testament uh, talks uh, uses the word um, uh, Hades here uh, about um, uh, well let me, let me give you a definition here from George Eldon Ladd of Sheol Sheol is the Old Testament manner of asserting that death does not terminate human existence um, that's a that's not a full definition of Sheol, and I'm sure Dr. Davis would have something more to add to that, I'm sure. Uh, but it's a kind of starting point, at least, that Sheol, at, le- at the very least, Sheol says that, that men and women survive death. And they survive death either in a state of blessedness or in a state of, of, of damnation, but there is continuance uh, and Sheol is the sort of general word of, of the state or the realm or the condition of the dead uh, without, without, without going into any, any specific detail. Uh, let me pick up some language here from our friend Alec Matir, uh, actually from his commentary on Isaiah um, and uh, uh, Sheol is the place, notice in quotations, uh, Sheol is the place where all the dead live. Um, it's not being specific as to whether they are in a state of blessedness or in a state of damnation, but that they, but that they live, they have continuance, they, they have existence. Secondly, in Sheol, there is personal community and mutual recognition. The, the king is recognized as he arrives. Uh, this is now a reference to the section in Isaiah that, he's, that he actually was commenting on. Uh, those already there rise from their thrones, not because there are thrones in Sheol, but to show that they are the same people as they were on earth. In the same way, Abraham was gathered to his people, and David looked forward to joining his infant uh, uh, son, uh, Bathsheba's child. Uh, thirdly, Sheol is a place of weakness with loss, not enhancement of earthly powers. The dead are shades or shadowy ones who describe themselves as having become weak and, and so on. So there's, there's a, the, a lot more nuance here to, to the idea of, uh, of Sheol. Uh, let's, let's drop down to Hades. Uh, this would be the Greek translation of uh, Sheol in the Old Testament, and then the, the word would be used then in the Greek New Testament. Again, it seems to refer to the idea of the realm of the dead. Uh, Acts chapter 2, 
uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, you will not abandon, he's quoting now, of course, from the Old Testament, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. He foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he wasn't abandoned to Hades. It's not a reference to hell. It's not a reference to Gehenna. It's a a reference to the realm of, of the dead. He wasn't abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Or in Matthew 11, 23, and you, Capernaum, uh, will, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until, uh, until this day. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's, pick up, uh, let's pick up on the parable Luke 16, the parable of uh, the rich man and, and Lazarus uh, in um, Luke 16 and verses 19 through to the end of the chapter. Right? There's a rich man clothed in purple, fine linen, feasted sumptuously. Every day at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, uh, the point here is that both in the parable, both the, both the the poor man and the rich man have a state of consciousness after death in the parable. Uh, one, uh, one is at Abraham's side and, and, and one uh, is in Hades, but he's in a state of consciousness and he's in a state of torment. He's able to lift up his eyes and see Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This is a parable. I, don't, I think we want to stretch too much of of. of of uh, what's being said here, but, but at the very least, at the very least, there is a state of consciousness here for both, um, for both the believer and the unbeliever, for both those uh, who are in a state of blessedness and those who are in a state of um, damnation. Now, three significant passages about the intermediate state. One uh, is Luke uh, 23, and uh, the penitent thief. And Jesus saying to the penitent thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Now bear in mind that there are those who, who, um, who grammatically uh, uh, put it this way, um, I say to you, Today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Right? So those who advocate a view of soul sleep are not terribly impressed with this text. Jesus saying to the dying thief, uh, the penitent thief, today you will be with me in paradise. It's, Jesus said it today. I say to you today, I, not, I didn't tell you yesterday, I won't be saying it to you tomorrow, but I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. So, so that, bear in mind, 
that translation is, uh, is out there, and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, might do that with you because of their view of, uh, of soul's sleep and so on. Um, I think contextually and grammatically, uh, as, our, as our English translations uh, will, will, uh, will advocate, um, Jesus is actually saying to the, to the dying thief that this will be true of him today, that though he dies... His body will be taken down and buried, but he will be in paradise. He will be in a state of blessedness and consciousness immediately after uh, death on the basis of his uh, expressed faith uh, in uh, the identity of the Lord Jesus. The second passage is Philippians 1. You remember Paul, he's in a strait between two to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, or to go to Philippi. He's in prison. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know how the trial might go. He doesn't know whether he's going to be released from prison. And he was, I think, released from that period of imprisonment. But, but he, he, he didn't know that at the time. And he's saying, I'm in a, I'm in a strait. As I think about this, I, I would love to come to you. You, you need me to come. I, there are things I can do to help you, and I'd love to meet with you and have fellowship with you and church supper and, 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 and so on. Um, but I, I would also like to, be, to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So, so for Paul, departing death meant being with Christ. And, and the context seems to imply a being with Christ in a, in a conscious way, not, an, not, an, not going into something called soul sleep. Uh, and then the, the, the other big passage, and perhaps, perhaps the most significant passage of all, uh, is uh, 2 Corinthians um, 5. I, I meant, and this is when I got the call to go to the hospital, so I, I, I didn't put in here everything I wanted to put in. But let me draw attention to verse 1 of chapter 5. Uh, for we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, right? So Paul is talking about death, and he's talking about pulling down a tent. A tent is something that's impermanent. Uh, this body of ours is impermanent, and uh, every day that goes by we're more aware of how impermanent, how impermanent this body is. Uh, we know that if, this, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. What, what is Paul referring to when he says, right, we die, our earthly tent is taken down, and then we have a building from God? What is he referring to? And there are, there are three sort of principal answers to that, to that identification. One is to suggest that Paul is referring to some kind of indeterminate um, existence. We have a building from God. So in the intermediate state, there is a kind of unspecified building of God that, that we, we continue to exist in some kind of indeterminate building of some, of some kind, an indeterminate body perhaps, put it that way. Um, a second view is that Paul is actually referring here not to the intermediate state. If we die, we know that we have this building of God, and he's referring to the final state. He's jumped right over the intermediate state to the final state, to the resurrection body that we will have at the second coming. 
uh, Riddaboss would hold that view. Um, uh, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, I think, would hold that view, uh, just to throw two names at that, at that interpretation. And then there's a third interpretation um, that actually, at death, this, this body, this building, is the resurrection body. That you, that, you, that you don't have to wait until the resurrection for the resurrection body, that there is a resurrection body of sorts in the intermediate state. Um, Bavink, would, Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian, would, would kind of interpret it that way. But Calvin, if you, um, you, know, if you read Calvin on 2 Corinthians 5, or read Calvin in... Uh, and the quotation that I, I, I never even told you where this quotation comes from. If souls were, when divested of their bodies, did not still retain their essence and have the capacity of blessed glory, Christ would not have said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, that's the Institute's uh, it's book four, chapter 25, I think. Um, and, and that's Calvin showing his nervousness about a bodiless existence in the intermediate state. That the intermediate state does have some kind of bodily form. Now I know the Westminster Confession, 1645, seems very clear that the intermediate state is a bodiless existence. Uh, Calvin was kind of, I think Calvin was very nervous about about talking that way. And, and, and if I can step back for a moment, and I'm not, I'm, I know I'm being recorded, and, and I, I give my allegiance to the Westminster Confession of Faith, so let me, let me approach this very carefully here. It's very difficult for us to think. How, how do you think without a body? How do you speak without a body? How do you recognize without a body? And none of us can answer that question because our entire existence is totally governed by this body of ours. And, and, and unless we drift into some kind of Greek thought, it's very difficult for us to imagine what that, what that even looks like or feels like, how to even describe that. And Calvin was particularly nervous about it. How can it be a blessed existence and a glorious existence in some kind of nakedness? So Calvin wanted to introduce into the intermediate state the idea that, that we are wearing at least the white robes of the righteousness of Christ, using that kind of figure, uh, to express the idea that the intermediate state, that it's difficult to imagine the intermediate state without some kind of temporary body. Well, let me pull back from the brink. Um, uh, Some some, uh, to-go boxes, uh, seven of them. Um, Answers to the question, uh, what happens after death? I'm annihilated. Seventh-day Adventism Worldwide Church of God as an unsaved soul. I'm totally annihilated. Uh, I go into a suspended state of non-existence. I don't even know what that means, uh, but that's Anthony Hookmer's uh, statement, not mine. Uh, I go to purgatory. 
Uh, that's Roman Catholic, high Anglicanism, high Lutheranism. Involves praying for the dead. We, we don't pray for the dead. Uh, I'm instantly resurrected. A famous 20th century New Testament theologian. Uh, I'm immediately reclothed. I, 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 I think Calvin is certainly there. That, that would be my assertion. Uh, I go into soul sleep. Uh, Luther, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, some kind, some forms of Seventh-day Adventists, uh, early Anabaptists. My body goes to the ground to sleep and my soul goes into sleep uh, until the resurrection. Uh, six, I go into a disembodied state. Well, some people say that's John Calvin's view. I, I, I differ. I, I, you need to read Calvin in 2 Corinthians 5. That's not, I think, where he is. Uh, and, and others, uh, I go into an intermediate state of existence. I'm clothed in a temporary spiritual body, similar to mine, but not the same as my glorified, resurrected body. And there are a whole host of people who, who, who are sort of there, and some of the names there you might be familiar with. Um, here's the Westminster Confession. It's on the front cover. The bodies of men... Chapter 32, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, uh, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies." And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's the hope. That's the New Testament hope for believers in the gospel and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is an instantaneous um, transmission of our existence from this world to another world in the presence of the Lord Jesus and in a state of consciousness and blessedness. What the nature of our bodily existence is, um, I, I, I leave you to ponder a little. I, I, I find it almost impossible to imagine or speak about a bodily existence. I don't know what that looks or feels like. Um, and I, I rather think that Calvin was right in wanting to say there is some kind of temporary physicality to our existence in the intermediate uh, in the intermediate state. Well, let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you. Thank you for these uh, extraordinary truths that we can say tonight. Uh, that if we were to die, if you were to take us home, that we would go into the presence of the Lord Jesus and be in paradise, in a state of blessedness. Father, for those who may be listening to this, who are not 
trusting in the Lord Jesus, who are not trusting in the gospel, who are building their hope entirely upon their own efforts. We, we pray that you would make it clear to them too that there is a state of awareness and consciousness, but it is a state of torment that awaits them unless they turn and believe in the Lord Jesus. So grant your blessing, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.